We take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 45. I want us just to read through this psalm together to start off with. It's in a group of songs, psalms that are all written by the sons of Korah and really all function together. And you'll notice there that it's a love song. So beginning in verse 1, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The riches of the people... All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes all in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations before. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This psalm is a royal psalm. And it's speaking of the king and his queen. It's a wedding song in many ways. We see that it is certainly a messianic psalm. While everything that was applied here would have originally been applied to David or that Davidic line. But ultimately we see that what is described here can be uh, filled by no other than Christ and his bride, the church. This is very common language that we find in the Old Testament. The idea of God as the bridegroom and his people, the bride. In fact, you see that throughout the Old Testament over and over again. But just a couple of verses to see it. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 8, it reads this. 
When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. In Isaiah 54, in verse 5, we see the same language. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. But yet we see... Not only Israel is described as the bride and God as the bridegroom, but when we come to the New Testament, we see that this is actually fulfilled in Christ and His church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You see it so clearly in Revelation chapter 19, where we see that we are called the bride. In verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Why does God use the language of marriage so often? Because marriage gives us the most vivid picture of the covenant relationship. But yet it also expresses to us something of the joy of marital bliss and the suffering of pain that results in it at times as well. In other words, this language, while it's what we would call analogical, it's similar language. It's giving us a picture of something that's similar. Obviously, a lamb is not going to be our bridegroom. This is language to give us a picture. It's not romantic language. And we should uh, take any of those type of notions out of us. It is a language that gets to the very heart of God, of His covenant commitment to His people, through what an ideal situation would be in a covenantal marriage. In other words, God shows us His heart when He says that he is the bridegroom and his people are his bride. His care, his commitment, his covenant that cannot be broken are all part of that language. So again, we have to remove any romantic ideals out of that, and we also have to remove any of the pain. It's much like when we see that God is our Father, our Heavenly Father. Sometimes that can bring pain to us. We have to remove that. Uh, God is the perfect Father. Likewise, He is the perfect Bridegroom. 
And so verse 1, in the presence of this king, the sons of Korah say that my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a, a ready scribe or a, a skillful scribe. And so the psalmist is saying that pleasure is brought about by composing a song and uh, composing a poem for the king. And he's overwhelmed. It says he's overflows. And it's the picture of overflows. You can imagine a, a, um, a pot of water that's boiling. And once it boils, the water comes over the top of it. That's the, that's the visual picture of this word of overflowing. It's something that he can't uh, contain. He's overwhelmed in the presence of the king. And so as a skillful scribe at the sight of the king, out of his heart overflows what he sees. And so verse 1 introduces what the rest of the psalm is about. When you get to verse 2, all the way to verse 9, it's all about the king. And so if you're noting that, Verse 1 introduces what is going to be talked about. Verses 2 through 9 is addressing the king, the bridegroom. And then verses 10 through 15 addresses the bride, the queen, the princess. And then verses 16 and 17 conclude. So what is addressed to this king? You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. This is speaking of the beauty of the king. This is coming from his heart where he recognizes the beauty of the king. Charles Spurgeon writes, A loving heart has the power to realize its object. And the penman, as he is writing this in the presence of the king, is overwhelmed with the beauty of the king. Let me just say, this language may make you uncomfortable. It may make some uncomfortable. In fact, I've, I've even heard preachers say, well, we should abandon some of that language if we want to reach men. And some have changed their ideas of what Song of Solomon means because of we couldn't possibly think that that's a picture of Christ and His church. I think we need to embrace the language of Scripture that Scripture gives us, and we have to remove any connotations that we have that are tainted by sin. The picture is this, is that when we behold Christ, we behold the beauty of Christ, who He is as reigning, sovereign King, and there is no more beautiful person than him that there is. We must embrace the beauty of the king. And notice what it says that grace is poured upon your lips. I think about the Lord Jesus and his words, and I have to begin by thinking of Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of 
soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's describing the, the piercing nature of God's Word. But then when you think about that Word as it comes forth from the lips of Christ, you see grace upon grace upon grace. I think about chapter 4 of John, where we are told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. The text says that he had to go there, which is a divine imperative, meaning that the Father had a plan for him to go to Samaria. It was part of his obedience to go through Samaria, which is normally avoided. There he meets a woman that is caught in scandal, And Jesus, through conversation to her, he reveals who he is. And chapter 4, verse 26 of John, he says this, I who speak to you am he. He reveals himself to this woman that was numerous husbands. The man she was with wasn't her husband. She had been shunned by society. And yet Christ reveals to this woman that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And when Christ reveals to you in your heart that he is the long-awaited Messiah, you have experienced grace poured forth from his lips. There's nothing better than that. I think of what we hear from the Lord Jesus as he calls people to himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Our Lord Jesus would not break a bruised reed. He was gentle, and grace was upon his lips constantly. You know what's amazing, though, about this? When we look at the Psalms, and I appreciated what was said this morning during the Scripture reading time, is that we see this pointing forward to Jesus, and we also have to recognize that the Psalms were also written and applicable during their own times. And David said this about himself in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 22, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And David could see this applied to himself, but yet it's not fulfilled in David. It's fulfilled actually in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be grace upon his lip, and it would be a life-saving grace upon his lips. Therefore, the psalmist says, God has blessed you forever. Just hang on to that theme of forever. Because this is speaking of a future that is coming. This is speaking not of just now, but it's really telescoping forward through eternity. Not only is the beauty of the king expressed, but then the might of the king. In verses 3 through 5, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. 
in your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. David was a mighty conquering king, but yet what do we see is that David died and his enemies rose up again against the people of God and over and over again. But what is it that we see in Christ? You'll notice that it tells us that he wrote out victoriously in your majesty. That is speaking of a singular victory of the king. What do we read of the Lord Jesus? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This king rides out in a singular victory, riding upon his word and his truth. His word and his truth is his chariot that leads him into victory. These were, the, by the way, the, the prescriptions of a king. In Deuteronomy in chapter 17, you see the prescriptions of a king from verses 14 to 20. This is before Israel even asked for a king, but God says, hey, when you go into the land, you're going to ask for a king. Here's the rules for your king. You might consider 14 through 17 is the, the ethical rules that the king should rule by. But verse 18, it moves on to the chariot that the king rides on. You notice in verse 18 it says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of his law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Here's the promise. If the king would follow God's law, follow God's word, God ensured victory. As long as they were faithful, they received the blessings. And if they departed from that law and the king led the people in another direction, they would be defeated. And so the chariot, so to speak, of the king is the truth of God's word. No king did that except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the will of his Father 
perfectly, never departing from the, by the left hand or the right hand, but always with a singular, perfect focus upon the will of God. Jesus is the only king that followed his Father's will. And the wonderful truth about this is that the king represents the people. The king was the one that would defend the people. Think of our king. We saw in Ephesians chapter 2 that he is above all rulers, that he is at the right hand of majesty on high. Look what we're told in instruction in how we live. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That is our strength, is not ourselves. Our strength is in our King. Not in what we can do. But He is the one who singularly rides out victoriously upon truth, meekness, and righteousness. That is how he rules. That is what his kingdom looks like. Now you get to verse 6, I want you to notice what it says, and pay careful attention to the text. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Pause, ask yourself to whom is being addressed here. It's the king. And how is the king identified? The king is identified as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteous uprightness. You have loved Righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. The king's being addressed through this whole thing, and yet the king here is identified as God. This can be no other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you'll read in some commentaries, this was common for the king to be uh, in, in ancient Near Eastern History that, that kings would be identified with their gods in, in such a way that they were identical. Uh, David certainly would not have been identified with God in that same sense. This is speaking of a future son of David, that he who sits on his throne is God. And we are told this of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That it's the Lord Jesus Christ who rules, and it is him that rules right now as God. And the nature of his kingdom, you'll notice, is uprightness. Look what it says in verse 7 you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You 
If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, you'll see this is prophesied of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, you know the verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think it's just absolutely amazing how clear the picture of Jesus is when you read the Old Testament. In many ways, you look at passages like Isaiah 53 and you go, how how could the Jewish people not see the Messiah? But when you look throughout the Old Testament in its totality, you wonder how... How do those that were ethnically Jewish that hold to that Judaism, how is it that they don't see that Christ fulfilled these things? We know that the theological answer, that their eyes were blinded. They were not given eyes to see, ears to hear. But you just wonder how when it's so clear that the Scripture is speaking of no other than Jesus Christ, how we could miss it. But yet I wonder how often it is that we pick up a psalm or we pick up a passage in the Old Testament and maybe we miss it. Notice what it says is, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. How could David write that? Yes, he's thinking of his future son, but how could he write that? Why would he he think of that as part of something that would be coming from his line. Well, because God promised him that. Your throne will be everlasting. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. And that it would be a scepter of uprightness that would never depart from the tribe of Judah is the promise of, of Jacob to his sons. Genesis 49.10. The scepter will never depart from And it would be a scepter of uprightness. Even Balaam prophesizes about this king that would come and rule. It's so clear that this is speaking of Christ. And verse 7 is really the central verse of this entire psalm. There's usually one verse that that encapsulates the whole entire thought. And verse 7 is it. Look what it says of our king. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Anointing just is a setting aside, but the word anointing is the word from which we get the word Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is the Greek. Messiah means the anointed one. 
Now look at who does the anointing. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Why? Why is Christ anointed? Well, verse 7 at the beginning tells us, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And the Father confirms that of the Son. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You'll notice the connection. Because you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore... That's the connection. Because you loved righteousness, because you hated wickedness, therefore God has anointed you. It goes on in verses 8 through 9 to speak of the splendor of the king. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivy, ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. Speaking of the honor and the exalted nature of the king, at your right hand stands the queen in gold and ophir. The pride of the king is in the place of honor next to him, at his right hand. And look at dazzled in gold. Christ. That's the bride of the king that is in the place of honor, robed in gold. The king is exalted in glory, but then the king takes his bride that she may be exalted. In verse 10, it shifts. Now it's no longer towards the king, but it's to the queen. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. That word forgotten, it means to wipe from memory, but it's really the idea of a change of priority. And you think in sticking with this concept of of marriage, what do we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? Therefore, Man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were together. But there's this leaving, you know, that idea that we have of leaving and cleaving. You, you leave this and come to this because you have entered into this new relationship. You, you have forgotten the voices of the past. That's the picture of marriage, but notice what the Lord Jesus says to those that would walk with him. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I love the picture of Mark in chapter 3 in verse 31. The crowds are always coming around Jesus. 
And it says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here. And you can just imagine Jesus opening his hands to those that were with him. His, his real... Mother and brothers are are outside wanting to see him. He's around crowds, and there's those that are sitting at his feet. And he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's certainly a change of priority that takes place in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, much like we see in that picture of marriage where the queen is said, incline your ear and forget your people and your father's house. There's a new priority that has entered in. You now are in relationship with the king. And look what it says. And the king will desire your beauty. Here it is. She inclines her ear and listens to the word of the Lord, to the king, and separates herself from these past things and now is desired by the king. Desired by the king. What it says, since he is your Lord, bow down to him. Whoever does the will of my father, these are my brother, my sisters, and my mother. Bowing down is a sign of submission, of reverence, recognizing who it is that you're bowing down to. And you look at the association here of this idea of the king brings beauty to his queen. The king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many-colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Hang on to that adorning language, the adorning of, these, of this clothing that the king does for the queen, because we actually, we've already read it, but I'll read it again. We, we see an image of that where Christ sanctifies the church by cleansed her by washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in what? Splendor. So what we see in that ornate language of clothing We see that Christ does that through his sacrifice and cleansing that we may be presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Verse 14. 
But that's not the only place that we see that language. You see in Revelation what we've already referenced, but I want to read the whole passage. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The church is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You, you couldn't capture what that looks like with the most ornate of things that we could imagine. Scripture tries to give us a picture of what that means to be clothed in righteousness with things of robes interwoven with gold. Can you imagine that? We, we saw a car at, at a museum a couple years ago that had gold mixed into the paint. Oh, that was excessive. Who would do that? Well, eccentric rich people do that. But you and I don't do that. Well, this is speaking of clothes and robes interwoven with gold. It's hard, it's hard to imagine what that's like. The many colored robes. What are those robes? It's the righteousness of Christ. You go into verse 16, and it concludes here, but it shows us something that is ongoing. And I would say what we see here is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that will take place in Christ. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. Promised line coming down. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So you started with the intention of the letter or of the psalm in verse 1. It's addressed to the king in verses 2 through 9. Verses 10 through 15 is to the queen, to the, to the bride. And then verses 16 and 17 is a return to the psalmist, then making these statements of this ongoing praise that will take place. The bride has left family but gains a new one. And that promise that sons will come from you is a promise that the king will make happen. And you think about the promise from the king. What has been stated of the king? Uprightness, righteousness, a hatred of wickedness. It's a sure word that this will happen. It says this, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. We will forever remember the blessing of our King. This is our King. And what a wonderful reminder that the Lord Jesus expresses His love for people through a picture of the most intimate and enduring covenant that we actually experience in this life. And a statement of what our love for Him should be like. I want to make just one closing application. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And let me tell you, you better praise God for that. That Christ is the bridegroom, because here's why. The first groom with his bride allowed her to take part in a piece of fruit at the temptation of the serpent. And because that king fell, we entered into a sinful fallen world. But we see that our bridegroom actually crushed the head of the serpent for his bride. And that's what our king did for us. That we may live in him and be clothed in righteousness. His very own righteousness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that in Him and by Him we are clothed with His righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but His. We thank you that He crushed the head of the serpent, that in Him we have victory, that He rides upon truth and righteousness and rules with righteousness. We pray that, Father, our desires would be to love righteousness and to hate wickedness as our King does. So we pray for your mercy, your grace, and your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.